Hello and welcome to the Together for the Common Good podcast channel. My name is Jenny Sinclair, and this is a podcast where we explore what the common good means in practice and how it can help us work towards civic and spiritual renewal. I'm the founder and director of the UK Christian charity Together for the Common Good. In this series, we're showcasing a set of nine lectures bringing alive what the common good means in terms of responsibility, political participation and civic life, human freedom, economy, the dignity of work, people and planet, and social peace. In this second episode, the second lecture in the series is given by Lord Maurice Glassman, who some might recognise as the architect of Blue Labour. Morris has probably done more than anyone I know to develop a coherent political economy from the Catholic social thought tradition. That, together with his own Jewish tradition, his admiration for Aristotle, Karl Polanyi and his community organising experience, is what underpins his politics. In this era when democracy is being weakened, we are concerned with the defence of the sacred and the upholding of human agency. And so I asked Morris to talk about relationship, association and participation in civic life, the inheritance of the vote and its significance, particularly in the abandoned places. You'll hear that he speaks from the heart. I hope you enjoy what Morris has to say in this lecture called Just Voting on Political Participation and Civic Life. So thank you. Thank you, Paul. And before I say, also really great to see you, Christine. Um, I remember those times in Derby and I promised that I would come. So another another promise redeemed. And it's really astonishing. I've never been to Lincoln before and I've never been to the cathedral before. And I'm, and I'm a bit elated. So if I get overexcited, then please, please bear with me. Because I arrived um, last night. Yes, I've been in Jerusalem for four days. And I kind of arrived at the blessed town of Luton um, at half past two in the morning last night. So I'm slightly sleep deprived, you might say. And it's very intense to have that connection. Yesterday I was praying at the Western Wall and today I heard Coral Evensong in Lincoln. And my mind is full of connections um, in that way. So that was very beautiful. And thank you for that invitation and for having me and for having me here. And the visit to Jerusalem still lingers with me. And I felt definitely when I was there the presence of David, King David, and his Queen Bathsheba. That was an interesting reflection um, of the Babylonian and Roman conquests, of the destruction of the temple, of the merciless exile. And the strange return that has occurred um, in these last 60 years. And part of that story of exile went on here in Lincoln. Um, St. Hugh's Choir is one thing, but there was also the little boy, the eight-year-old, the little St. Hugh as he was known. Um, and we, the Jewish community here, were accused of killing him in a form of ritual sacrifice. Henry III got involved in all that. And there was a really terrible sort of exile and oppression of the Jewish community here that kind of culminated in the expulsion of the Jews and 90 years later in 1290. And one of the advantages that the monarch had was that they could seize all the Jewish property and it fell to them. And when I was reading about it um, while preparing this lecture, I found from a historian called Lamuel a very interesting quote. He said that Henry III was a suspicious person who flung charges of treason recklessly, who was credulous and poor in judgment, and often appeared like a petulant child. So nothing really changes when it comes to political leadership, I think. And, um, and also three weeks ago, which I will talk about, I was in, I was in Ukraine. I went for a visit to, to Kiev. I was on an interfaith delegation, which included the Bishop of Dorking, Joe Bailey Wells. And my family were from there. My grandfather was born uh, near Odessa. And, while I was preparing this, I just wanted to say that I was deeply aware that the only country in Europe where the Jewish community lived and survived through the Second World War was our country, was this country. 
and to say that when you think in terms of faith, these are long stories that we are involved with. And um, in many ways, my whole of my political orientation is a way of saying thank you to the people of this country for, for saving my life and the life of, of my community. And we've got to live, I think, with these ambivalences along the way. But I also wanted to say that I'm hugely grateful for this invitation and I consider it a very graceful one indeed. Um, so... You mentioned Catholic social thought, and a large part of my talk, well, my politics is inspired by that, and I will talk more about it as the lecture goes on, because I think that the conception of the kingdom and Catholic social thought, the, the vision that we could articulate and that the church can play a role and a leading role in articulating has yet to be done. This is what I'm saying, is that is the Catholic social thought with the idea it's the dignity of every person, but there's a special regard for the dignity of labor, for the dignity of the worker, that I think is, is immaculate, <laughs> to use the correct phrase. It's, um, and it's tied to vocation, and, it, and it's an extremely important insight. Yeah. I'm, okay. Well, what I'll try to do, so first of all, mea culpa, my mum always said I was a mumbler. She goes, I can't hear you, you're mumbling. And so I'll try and talk. I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, I'll try and talk a little slower and a little louder, but please mention it again because I'm bound to default to a mumbling position. Okay, so let's, let's have a go. I'm not used to speaking in quite so august a chamber, which I include the House of Lords in that. In the House of Lords, you can mumble quite easily and people hear it, but I'll have a go. Um, and the, so the first thing that I always talked from Catholic social thought was the thing that we forgot over these last 40 to 50 years is a respect for the worker and a respect for work and the idea of vocation. And I will talk about that. The second, which you mentioned, is subsidiarity, which is, which is really the idea that power and community life should be exercised at the lowest possible level, commensurate with its function. Well, that's how I, I understand it. And we live in a country where power has been very centralized in Westminster and in the other place, which I will talk about, which is the city of London. A huge amount of the assets of the country are concentrated in a very small place, controlled by very few people. But the third aspect of Catholic social thought, which I think is vital, is the concept of solidarity, which is that we have a responsibility one to the other um, that has to be practiced, you know, in, in, in real action, uh, that it's not just an abstract sentiment, and that the way that our communities are organized should be, this is what the common good is about, should be the reconciliation of estranged interests um, in, in genuine community. And the fourth aspect of Catholic social thought, which I think is vital, and I will talk about this more later, so if you miss it in the echo now, I will bore you about it a little later, um, which is that we are stewards of our, of nature, of, of our inherited environment. So to put it very simply, I think that we've lived through 40 to 50 years where creation itself, human beings and nature, have been subject to the market, turned into commodities. And now we're beginning to wake up. And so what I want to talk about is, is, is a vision um, of the kingdom where those things, human beings and nature, are both held to be sacred. And the way that we do that is through building human, voluntary human community and association um, in defense of the sacred. So why do I think that we've got to this point? Well, I think we're living in a time of intensifying crisis, but this is how um, it is. And what we've lived through, I will just highlight four um, over the last 
sort of 12 to 14 years. Um, and the first shock, which people don't talk about anymore, but is still very vivid in my memory. You know, does any, anybody remember the financial crash in 2008? Or does that? Yeah. Okay, so it's kind of gone down the memory hole, but it was very shocking. The entire, you know, we used to have things, does anybody remember building societies when they were mutuals? You know, we used to have things like the Halifax, you know, Bradford, you know, we can list the names, Norwich, which were associational forms of banks, really, and lending that were rooted in place and controlled by their members. And they were demutualized, I'll talk about that, but also with the banking system. Do you remember the Midland Bank? You know, they used, they used to also be rooted in place and had a relationship with the local businesses and people who lived in those places. And then we got to the stage where their decision-making was centralized and now there aren't bank managers in that way. You have to ring a number. They play really bad techno music from the 1980s for up to 45 minutes before you can even speak to anybody and the decisions are done procedurally. But above all, what the financial crisis indicated to me was the beginning of the end of an era. I mean, Pope Francis said um, a few years ago that we're not living through an era of change, but a change of era. And it's just to try to understand what that new era looks like, because it's quite shocking. Because we thought that prosperity and globalization and technology and progressive legal orders and transnational organizations were going to eliminate politics, eliminate conflict. Everybody was going to be fine. And we all kind of went with that. So the end of that, I just want to recognize, is traumatic and, dif and difficult. But this is where I think that the vision, the Christian inheritance and the vision of the church play such an important role. So I will be referring back to the financial crisis as the beginning of the trauma. And then, and it was a trauma just to get to the point of what you've asked me to talk about, that none of the political parties, including mine, had any grip on, that they could, you know, let's just please go back to how it was before. Please just stop all of this. And we're still working through the consequences of that politically. The, the second trauma I'm going to mention, which I think people might remember a little better, was Brexit. You know, just the degree of hate and polarization generated by that. I consider myself blessed to be in a town that voted for Brexit by 70% to 30. But if you were in London, which I was, you would think that fascism was on the rise, that there was some terrible threat. And rather than a reclamation of democracy, it was a scary and terrible prospect. And I will, I will be talking about that, but it's something that, that has not yet been healed. It has not, we're still working through the consequences of that. And then the third trauma, which I think we're still living in the consequences of when we've barely begun to discern it and will provide quite a significant part of the talk, if I have the time, is what we went through with COVID, is the lockdown, COVID, the break, the elimination of society and the prospect it opened up, Paul and Christine, for me, which was the most scary, which is that the lights in the church went out is that you could suddenly imagine a country without a church. And I, was, I, want, I wish to share with you that that was the most traumatic aspect for me, because if the church is eliminated from society, who will represent the soul in our society? Where will there be a refuge from the state and the market and those pressures? And I, I think this is where we have to find inspiration to articulate a vision of the kingdom in which the church is an essential aspect. And the fourth trauma, which I think we're only gradually beginning to realize it, is the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, as I say, I was in Ukraine uh, about three weeks ago for a while, and the scale of this violence is something to, to behold. The, the willfulness 
of conquest is something we haven't seen in Europe since 1945. And it's not going to go away. And it will also generate very significant changes um, in our politics um, and the way that we live. So just wanted to say that when I'm talking to you about um, politics and the kingdom, when I'm talking to you about the possibilities of grace and place in, the, in, in how we live, it's within this framework of a, of a new order. And this, this new settlement that we're moving towards, I think that if we look at the financial crash, Brexit, COVID, and now this invasion of Ukraine as linked, then we can begin to understand what the features of the new order are. And what I will say is, is, is that the first aspect of this is that the nation state, the features of the new order, is that the nation and the nation state play a far more important role than those who told us that we were living in an era of globalization can comprehend or understand. So what do I mean by globalization? I mean by globalization that finance capital is in control, that it must be able to move freely, invest where it will, extract what it will, and that by opposing it, you are, and Joe, good luck with your new work, but the response of the status quo is that these views are nostalgic, reactionary, but we saw it play out very much with Brexit is that there was, there has been an abandonment of huge parts of our country. I mean, a, 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 not just an abandonment, but a desecration and a contempt in all of that. And the people of the country spoke, and they spoke through democracy, and it was shocking. Well, it was just a sheer reality, and it was particularly a working class vote that spread from the north of the country to the south. And I, as someone who worked on that campaign, there was no organization. But it was saying that if, we, if our vote doesn't matter, this is the key part of the lecture, really, if our vote doesn't matter, then we don't matter. In other words, that a democratic vote is part of a sacred inheritance. We spoke about it, I noted in a Coral Evening song about speak for the people, and their inheritance, and their inheritance was being taken away. And as many people said to me, if we don't do this, and forgive me for my language in such a beautiful place, and a sacred place, but people said, you, meaning me, a Lord, will never listen to a bloody word we say ever again. That was the a feeling that I heard David, in Blackburn, in Preston, in Burnley, in Newcastle, it was a consistent message about the redemption of the vote. But that redemption of the vote was also a statement about the primacy of the nation state as a political actor in the world. So it was the case in, in globalization that state intervention in the economy was bad. It led to inefficiencies. It led to bureaucracy, it led to an undermining of prices and market equilibrium. What I'm saying is, what's going to be in the new era is rethinking how the state can be a partner to communities in the production of things and the elevation of the status of people. So how we work that, I would say that the church, Catholic social thought, but not only has a fundamental role in articulating this political economy in which human beings and nature are not merely commodities, but a sacred inheritance to be protected and nurtured against the princes and the principalities. Can you hear me? Is it okay? Great. But do speak out if you, if you can't. So in other words, what I think we're dealing with is is the renewal of the kingdom, literally the kingdom, our kingdom. And then how is that articulated in terms of the kingdom as a place that is genuinely ethical, relational, and rooted in the ecclesial organization of the parish. So that's a very important part of this, is that what globalization also said was the place doesn't matter. 
So you can manage your assets from your laptop in the Bahamas. You don't need to be anywhere or live anywhere in order to participate in this. And what we're seeing, particularly with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, if you think about it, it's the first time in history that the nation state has laid down to the city of London that there's certain money that they can't accept or deal with, with the sanctions of the Russian oligarchs. It's a very important, it's a very important moment. So the first thing I want to say is, is that the new era, for good or for bad, is going to involve politics. And it's going to involve how we power, in other words, the assertion of power, and it's going to be within the framework of the nation state. That we saw quite clearly with Brexit, but we also saw it with COVID. Do you remember when COVID came in? Suddenly, every nation state in Europe acted completely independently in pursuing its policy. And the second aspect of, of globalization is, you might say, that the abandoned and the despised, what Hillary Clinton called in a brilliant sentence, the basket of deplorables. Remember this, the basket of deplorables. Yeah, so I heard of the basket of Clancy, you know, but this was a new, I give her credit for coining a new collective noun for people, but it's a basket of deplorables that the working class, but the poor, the least of these, are now elevated in importance. So we saw that very clearly with the Brexit vote, and we saw it very clearly, let it not be forgotten, in 2019 with the election of the Conservative government, where areas that have been Labour since time began, you know, places that I would call the very heartlands of the Labour movement, abandoned the Labour Party and voted Conservative. This is all so... What I'm saying is, is that the working class are no longer, what were the words we used about the, about the working class for the last 30 to 40 years? Left behind was one of the, one of the phrases. And other phrases were used, they basically had to be re-educated into a knowledge economy and transformed into different people with different values. Very Soviet, you know, re-education, and all those things. And yet now in the new dispensation, in the new era, it's the working class that will decide elections. It's that's just voting and the power of voting is extremely important to understand that a class of people who were considered irrelevant to the future now hold the keys to the future. So that's very, I think, I think the Christian tradition is more than capable of understanding that the least of these will be the greatest of these, that the last will be first. It shouldn't be something we're afraid of, but I can tell you that where I come from, they're afraid, and they're very afraid of this. Um, and then the third aspect of the new era is that the places that those people live. So I took a walk from the station up to the cathedral, if anybody had told me how high it was, I would have taken a cab. But I tried to go walking through places uh, where I'm invited. And you can see in Lincoln two cities, even from the walk, I could clearly apprehend that. And I will talk later, um, Ben, about Grimsby and what that means. But, but these places, these faraway towns, these abandoned places, um, I think they hold the key to the future of the kingdom. I think that that is where we have to have to engage. That is where democracy will be reborn, and that is where the kingdom will be forged. It won't be done in London. It won't be done in Manchester or Liverpool or Bristol. It will be done here in North Lincolnshire, here in Lincoln, here and in all these places in Yorkshire, in Lancashire, in Staffordshire, those places that have been completely ignored in terms of the investment of capital and engaged in terms of managed decline in terms of the state. I think that those places 
um, will hold the key to the kingdom. So those are the three features features of the of this new era. The new era will be one where, if you look at the previous era in terms of globalization as an era of globalization, there were several assumptions. The first assumption was that the nation state was over as an economic actor, but it was an administrative unit within a global system that was there to enforce um, the laws of essentially capitalism. And that's because globalization was based on the supremacy of finance capital and its ability to invest wherever it wished and extract um, in the way that it sees best. In other words, that the allocation of resources was in the hands of capital. So if the rates of return are low in Lincoln, are low in Grimsby, then that's just the way of the world. There was nothing you could do about that. You could do a bit of state redistribution. You could build a technology annex at a school. What else could you do? Oh, maybe pretend that another institution is a university and give it some... But there was no way of investing resources in those places because it didn't make market sense. So that's the second aspect of globalization. The, the third was you could do nothing about... Technology was by its nature borderless, and so there was nothing you could do to um, develop any form of political economy that could challenge the primacy of capital. Uh, and, and these were the assumptions that underpinned all government policy. I would say from Thatcher through... Blair was completely committed to this, the era of globalization. If you can't compete, you go to the wall, and that we were moving towards a knowledge economy. This is a very important part of it, a knowledge economy where essentially everybody could work from home. Now we understand from COVID. However, what we discovered in COVID was, oh, no, we need people to leave home and go to work and do things for other people, on the whole, with their hands. I'm talking about lorry drivers. I'm talking about nurses. I'm talking about shelf stackers at supermarkets. The very people who were considered completely irrelevant to the future suddenly became the very basis. And that's because globalization is a fantasy that obscured the reality of human labor, the dignity of labor, the reality of place, the social nature of the human being, the longing for companionship, the desire to have some agency in the world, all of these were stilled in the era of globalization. And I'm just saying that in our hearts, we have to be open to the possibilities that emerge now that era is ending and to seize the moment of articulating an alternative um, because we haven't got there yet. You know, that's the other way. We're in something called an interregnum. I could go on. It's a horrible Latin word, but an interregnum is a period between times and all manner. A great Italian Marxist theorist called Antonio Gramsci, Joe, just uh, said that uh, in an interregnum, there is a fraternization of opposites and all manner of morbid symptoms pertain. So I think we can take that as a very nice description of the period that we've lived in in the last five, six years. But out of this will come a new settlement. And this, a part of that is the renewal of those things that I spoke of, of the local place, of the communities with power in those local places, and the ability of politics to actually transform the way that we live. And that's the key to all of this, is a concept of civic renewal. That this will not be driven from the top, this must be driven from the local places, and that the institutions of those places have to be restored and their integrity has needs to be renewed. And that links up, uh, Paul and Christine, to the really important thing I wanted to say in this cathedral, is to recognize the suffering of the church, is to recognize the grief of the church, to recognize that when COVID turned the lights out, the darkness fell. And part of this change, pardon me, I smoke, and when I don't smoke for up to half an hour, I begin coughing. But while I'm smoking, I'm absolutely fine. Um, 
that the that the church must reconceptualize itself as a partner in that civic renewal, not as a host, but as a neighbor, as a partner to the other grieving, emaciated civic institutions that surround it. Because by building a common good with the people who you live with and being vulnerable in the recognition um, of your plight, in recognizing that the church is in need of friendship, then the redemption of the church in our kingdom uh, can be found because the church is a bearer of a very, very special gift. And that gift that it is there is that it is not a market institution, it's not a state institution, it's a civic institution based on the possibilities of redemption and of love. That's simply put, and the best way that I can put it, but there is no other institution in our country rooted in every parish in our country where the possibility of redemption can still be found. And this is the role of the church and what I wish to uh, talk about. So we've gone through the... We've touched upon the financial crisis that I think triggered the end of the previous era. We're still working through the consequences of that. And I've spoken about the new era of the emergence um, of, the, of the nation state, the renewed importance of the working class as a voting block, and the places that were supposed to be the neglected and the abandoned places being the central places now that will decide the future of the kingdom. And the second crisis, which I've talked about, and I will talk about a little more, was the Brexit crisis where there had to be a confrontation between two visions. One vision, which was the globalization vision, that our future lay in ever-increasing integration into ever-more-powerful transnational institutions that were themselves based upon all the assumptions of globalization in terms of technology, in terms of the subordination of politics to a very different legal system. And the shock that we experienced when that was resisted by people who said that maybe voting, you know, should matter and should be able to actually change things. And the third, which I'm going to go more deeply into now, is what, what was actually going on during lockdown? What was, what was going on during COVID, which was the, the third trauma, trauma? What was going on when the night, when the lights in this blessed cathedral were extinguished and we were all in darkness where all we had was the internet? It was a, it was a shocking vision of a non-social life whereas opposed to other people being part of our life, we could always say, I've got to leave the Zoom now. Bye. <laughs> and that person went into a kind of ethereal darkness. And what I'd like to say is that the coronavirus actually attacked the underlying conditions of you know, what they called comorbidities of our bodies. It went straight for the weaknesses in our body. It probed our immune system. It preyed upon our pre-existing weaknesses. I think you can see where I'm going with this. <laughs> this is what the virus did, but this was also what the virus revealed in our body politic. It just went straight for the underlying weaknesses. It targeted the poor. It targeted older people. It revealed in a shocking way the palsy of our industrial capacity. We couldn't make face masks. It turned out that we couldn't make face masks, let alone ventilators or whatever else was required. We were completely dependent and it loomed very large on China for the very basic production of the most fundamental necessities, which I will talk about soon. But China, there is no freedom of religion. There is no freedom of trade unions. In China, workers, 20 workers are shot every week in unofficial strikes. We don't read of it, we don't see it. But China is basically based on the absolute degradation of labor, the elimination of the common good, 
the absolute renunciation of democracy. And that is the country we were completely dependent on for the fundamental satisfaction of our most basic needs that came out of the era of globalization. We'd contracted out the necessities and then we became, for a period of about 18 months, completely dependent on a centralized state. This is what happened to us. Suddenly furlough, vaccines, it, it was... I think when we look back on it as we are doing now, I hope that it leads to reflection. And it also revealed how atrophied our body politic was, how, how weak the other institutions, not least the church, which as I say, I, I, I looked it up. It was the first time for a thousand years that the church closed its doors. It hadn't, didn't close its doors in times of war, it didn't close its doors in times of previous plague, but it did close its doors during this period. And I just want to recognize how deeply shocking uh, that was. And then we realized that both state and capital were both centralized, and our entire country, to use a medical metaphor, was on a kind of debt-based life support system. So the state could create more money, that could go into the furlough, that could keep everything going, and then it was revealed that vulnerability was the fundamental reality of our lives, that we were weak, dependent creatures who absolutely depended on others for our life. But there was no society. There was nobody to turn to. There was none of that support. People acted incredibly, but they left the food outside the door. You couldn't see or speak to the person. So in other words, there was no civic immune system that could generate value and initiate action other than this central state. And there was no what I call civic ecology that could support local economies, shorten supply chains. There was simply the NHS and debt. <laughs> you know, those were the two fundamental parts of the new order. So we reached a kind of limit, I think, in COVID that I'd like to explore here that there was a common need for an industrial strategy. And if you remember, and it's important to give credit for these things, the development of the vaccine was an extraordinary achievement. The AstraZeneca vaccine in the country was the first time since 1964 that the state initiated a very successful technological innovation through the generation of a collaboration between universities, capital, um, uh, universities, capital, and and lo local um, communities, and, and and that has not been pursued. But I think it gave a, certainly a glimmer of light. So what I'm saying is that I think that the experience of COVID, um, certainly in me, generated a vision of a decentralised institutions, the need for a decentralised institutional ecology that could bring life to the neglected and abandoned regions through an integrated national system. And central to this are very boring economic things that I find interesting, but I don't know, not everybody does, but these are about productivity, supply chains, forms of national self-sufficiency for the first time became... Do you remember there was a period where nothing moved and we didn't have the things that we needed. And I think that now is the time to reflect. Certainly now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, we have to think very, very carefully about these issues, about what is required. This is not autarky in terms of abandoning trade with the world, but recognizing that in this era, there will be times when we have to depend on ourselves. But that, look at what's happening to Germany now with its energy. Germany, just to go very briefly, in an act of ecological virtue, closed its coal mines, closed its nuclear, essentially closed, um, destroyed its capacity to generate its own energy. But what they didn't tell us was that they were completely dependent on Russia <laughs> for gas, for oil, and for coal. And that 70% of its energy needs and so when Russia invaded Ukraine, what was Germany's response? Mm. Shouldn't have done that. Mm. Mm. 
it's dependent and it's absolutely affecting its capacity to act in any kind of ethical or moral way. And what I'm saying is that the vision that comes from this is very much rooted in Catholic social thought and these four things that I mentioned earlier. Subsidiarity, the dignity of work, solidarity and the stewardship of nature. This is an integrated Christian way of conceptualizing the very practical and real kingdom that we must see and that we should see. And so there's need to rethink an enduring system in the same way as the church actually built our polity, the ecclesial polity, the parish, was preceded our political polity. The forms of the political organization of our country were rooted in these things um, until a central state superseded. Anybody remember Thomas of Beckett? That was a bit of a situation. We won't, we won't go into it too much here. But there were various... I mean, it was astonishing to hear Coral Evensong how the continuity of the Catholic tradition was so alive in this church. But this was not the case, let's say, in 1538. You know, this was... These, there have been uh, journeys along, along the way. So we need to think, using the Christian inheritance as our starting point, how to reform our economy, how to reform our polity, and how to reform our society, so that there can be the possibility of grace and I define grace as the possibility of trusting relationships lived out in place. That's, you know when it's right. You know when it's right. And we're very far from that place. But that place is the place uh, that I wish to go. And that this approach is based on the common good, which is fundamental uh, to many different Christian traditions. Um, not only the Catholic one, which is based on the active reconciliation of previously estranged interests. So to turn that little bit of an academic sentence into something that can actually be understood by me, um, capital labor, rich and poor, um, immigrants and locals, men and women, this has to be actively negotiated in new forms of, of the common good. And we have to stress that this is in everybody's benefit because long-term partnerships rooted in place are the things that survive. Look, I just ask you to look at the workmanship of this place, what it must have taken to build this place, the astonishing work of a century, I would imagine, which did involve capital, labour, different orders, all combining and working for the durability of institutions that have survived for 900 years. And one of the reasons that Catholic social thought has such an advantage compared to competing, and the Christian tradition generally, compared to competing intellectual interpretations, of which I include secular thought in its entirety, because it's, if you notice, nobody from many universities are putting forward any explanation of what's going on other than some bad management and some tweaking of things maybe here or there is, is, is the, what I would say, particularly of the progressive tradition which I have to live with in, in the Labour Party is that they have no conception of their own sin. They think that they're free of sin. Now, you lot out there, you're full of sin and you're bad people and you need to be re-educated, but the people themselves, in their ideology, they think they know what to do and they think they are without sin, whereas particularly Catholic social thought is a fallen theology, which means that the possibilities and the reality of sin are permanent in our lives. We have to recognize that that is the case. I want you to know that I certainly stand before you wrapped completely with sin. And that Catholic social thought is not messianic or utopian. It's trying to deal with the powers of the world and how to redeem a form of grace amid those pressures. And that can be summed up by the statement of John Paul in Centesimus on us, which was 100 years, which... So 1992. And on the way, by the way, this is just anecdotal and nothing to do with the lecture, but on the way to Kiev, I had to go to Poland, and you realise... <laughs> 
John Paul II as a living force in, in Poland. And what he wrote in Centesimus Annus is that human beings tend towards good, but are capable of evil. Right? I know that sounds, but that's the best philosophical definition of human nature that I've yet found in 40 years of really meaningless postgraduate study on this topic is that human beings tend towards good but are capable of evil and we have to bear that in mind in the way that we think and the way that we act. And there is no sphere of life in which the reality of vice and selfishness, greed and dishonesty are more apparent than in the economy. That in the economy, maximizing your returns, getting rich, talk, being about yourself, um, are considered to be good, and opposing those things is considered silly at best and really, really unpleasant at worst. So where I think that the fundamental work has to be done is to view the reality of sin, what, what John Paul II talked about, the structure of sin within the prevailing economic system. And the Catholic social thought found an alternative to communism. To Obviously, John Paul II, by the way, was not a communist. I think we can all agree that this was the case. Um, and yet, he understood that there had to be a resistance to the power of, of capital if the human status of the person and the divine sacred nature of creation would be redeemed. And so... Um, that's why I'm so inspired um, by Catholic social thought. This the idea that human beings are not exclusively commodities, that nature is not just an asset to be exploited, um, and that their sacred character has to be upheld in our politics. That somehow, you know, it's, there's a bit of that in human rights, but then it becomes a legal system. But what I'm saying is that through the way that we live and associate, we uphold the integrity of the human. And that's the importance of democracy, is that democracy has always been the way that poor people can exert some accountability, some power over their rulers, who are sometimes called rich people. So given that reality, Catholic social thought tries, tries to develop incentives to virtue, to reward people. This is bearing in mind that people are sinful by nature, to reward people um, when they do well. And it's based on the idea of self-interest broadly conceived. It's all in our interest to find this common good. It's of mutual benefit uh, to people to find the meaning through love, through work, through labor, the fulfillment of their duty to others. These necessary fundamental things should be recognized in the incentive structure. So, for example, there should be tax support for capital when they continue to invest in companies rather than moving out. Um, and incentives need to be given uh, to build a better future and, and the reward of honest and creative labor. One thing, go back to the financial crash, the scale of the line the scale of the deception in the audit reports and what they were doing, the exposure of the enormous amount. There's a word for it, but I'm not going to use it in the cathedral, but let's just say creative accounting was the operative concept. But when it was revealed, it was not they who paid, but it was the poor who paid. You know, it was the biggest transfer of wealth from rich to poor since the Norman Conquest on that day in 2008. And then he just said, okay, that's done. Let's, let's just, what I'm saying is, that's not how it goes. And uh, the reason I think the Catholic social thought, and I think that's the main reason why Catholic social thought offers us a way out of this interregnum. I only met, I've only met Pope Francis once. Um, and in a very strange turn of events, Certainly, for a Jewish person, I was invited to the Vatican to give a talk on Catholic social thought. That was a, a tricky one on a Friday, Christine. You know, it was, it was, and if you know anything about Italy, you know that on a Friday afternoon, all Italians want to do is not go to work. They just want to leave work, go to their country houses, get the hell out, 
and some uh, due from London. They all had to stay and they had to sit in there. It was, it was a very interesting experience. And so I was taken to meet him afterwards. And he said to me with wonderment, genuine wonderment, he said, who would have thought England? He was like, <laughs> he said, who would have thought that this would be going on um, in England? He looked genuinely amused. And I do think that it is going to be in our kingdom that we generate this new or this new settlement that everywhere else is trapped in various ways, but we are free. We have a freedom now to do this. So just to go through the political economy of the Catholic social thought, the first is a genuine recognition of labour and capital, that those things have meaning, that there is such thing as labour value, and that's what it upholds, that capital, so in relation to what I said about the era of globalization, is that capital is no, is, cannot be the dominant interest. There has to be a balance of interests. And that we have degraded the dignity of labor, and that needs to be re restored. In Quadressimo Anno, which you mentioned, it says that man is born to labor as a bird to fly. That, that he, they believe that work is natural to human beings, but it is degraded and it is distorted by the economic system that we have. So that's the cruel paradox that's outlined in Catholic social thought, that labor is a source of vocation, of the way that we serve others, of a vocation, of a truly human calling, but it's also the site of domination and exploitation and the degradation or the domination of management, of labor, of capital, of workers, and that needs to be, in Catholic social thought, the act of work calls upon an inheritance of good practice and tradition that we need to support the concept of vocation and vocational colleges. In other words, there is a priority of labor, which I don't mean geopolitically, I mean it as a factor as of, of the human worker which involves a recognition of a substantive body of skilled practice embodied in the individual person but passed on through vocational institutions. So in the era of globalization, to make what I'm saying real, at the beginning, in 1979, there were equal number of people in apprenticeships as going to university. Now it's 90-10. The universities have 90% and, very, and, the, and then suddenly, we need builders, we need plumbers, we need carpenters, we need nurses, we need social care. But no attention has been paid for the reproduction of that within our own societies. So that's where globalization moves to the immigration. You bring in people to do those things, and that becomes a necessity. So let's just to talk about the dignity of labor is also a respect for this, for virtue, for good doing. So I define virtue as, do, as good doing rather than do-gooding. You know, to get our minds into that way is to recognize um, people's expertise and their skill in the things that need to be done. Caring for others, maintenance of buildings, those things. So in Catholic social thought, and I, I should stop soon, shouldn't I? I'm sorry. I wrote too much. Anyway, we can talk about all of that. But I just wanted to, uh, I'll, I'll briefly somewhat summarize, is, 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 is that recognizing that we live in a world that, I just want to go into this thing about capital and how Catholic social thought understands it. So capital wishes to take things that were not produced for sale, a human being, the energy in creation, and it wishes to turn it into a commodity. It's a really bad word. What's the time? Half past seven. A bit too early, but I'll use it. The process is it's a really terrible word, and it's ugly, but there's no alternative. It's based on commodification. That's to turn what was not produced for sale, I'm sorry, I'm now going too far, into something that's in the price system, fluctuating prices. So that's what capital, and what 
Catholic social thought is saying is that the human being is sacred and the knowledge that they inherit is a common inheritance and that should be used to challenge the domination exclusively and of, of money. So there's much more to say, as you can see, from turning over the pages. Um, but you can see this, what has happened. So, for example, I'll be three minutes. But just to give a practical example of what I'm talking about is, um, let, let's take, remember earlier I talked about the building society. So what happened to the common people of our country? What happened to them? in the 16th century, in the 17th century, in the 18th century, is whereas before there was a recognition of customary practice. That means people could inherit a home. There were common fields where they could have fruit and food. In other words, the very necessities of life were not dependent on money. What happened was the enclosures, where gradually it took three or four centuries freehold title subordinated customary practice. And the poor were exiled from their lands, and we know where they went. They went to the industrial cities. You know what happened to them in the industrial cities. Um, they were very much exploited, but they didn't take that as their fate. And they built institutions of which the church was the primary refuge for them. Um, in terms of... Um, building societies was one aspect of that. But the first act of that was the burial societies. I mean, the burial societies were the first institutions in our country um, which buried Catholic and Protestant because they all had to pull their resources because otherwise they had the paupers growth. So the retrieval of the dignity of death was actually the first act. I believe the labor movement, you wouldn't believe it now. And um, the, the second thing was these building societies. So in Newcastle in 1840, they set up this beautiful thing that was called the Northern Counties Permanent Building Society. I can't, I can't say it fairer than that. I love the idea of the permanent. I love the idea of conceptualizing themselves as Northern Counties. And it became the most trusted local institution embedded in its place, uh, completely neutral. And to give you an idea of how it functioned, in the minor strike of 26, let alone the minor 73, let alone the minor strike of 86, they waived mortgage payments during the strike so that miners could keep their homes. Right? That was the kind of embedded local institution. And in 1964, it merged with the Rock Building Society. Can you see where the story is going? To become Northern Rock. Well, yeah. And that was privatized in the cosmic year of 1997. And put it this way, it didn't last the length of the Labour government. It, and this, this is the decimation of the institutional inheritance. This was a local institution based on membership, mutual in practice, careful and prudent in its practice, that was completely eviscerated in the name of the assumptions of globalization. My apologies, I've spoken too long. I'm very happy to be here. I'm a bit overexcited, as you could imagine, both with the journey and then seeing the cathedral. But what I want to say is just in final conclusion is something about Frimsby, what, what it is that for me, the most abandoned, the most despised, the most marginal are the working class in the post-industrial small towns. But this has been where the greatest grief has gone on. Try to be true to the vision. Ben is here, and I hope that over a drink or a cigarette, maybe you can bear witness that we've got an organizer now in Grimby just to see if it's possible to generate these relationships, just to see if there's still, you know, it, you know the story in the Bible with the old bones walking? This is the, this is the act of faith involved in the politics that will become. Do we believe that those old bones can walk again? Are, are we on permanent life support? And that this inheritance of voting, this practice of democracy at a local level is a fundamental part of the civic inheritance of our kingdom. It's to be loved, it's to be nurtured, and that's how it can be resurrected. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.
That was a wonderful lecture from Lord Glassman. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, please consider rating this episode in your podcast app. This will really help other people to find it. And please do share it with friends who you think would enjoy it as well. I'd like to thank Morris for talking about political participation and civic life. It's so helpful to hear his vision set out so clearly in such accessible terms. I hope you enjoy listening to the other lectures in the series too. My name is Jenny Sinclair, founder and director of Together for the Common Good. I'd love it if you would explore our other work too, including our sister podcast, Leaving Egypt, with my good friend Alan Roxburgh, where we explore what it means to be God's people in times of unravelling. You can find it where you're listening to this podcast right now, or you can join our community at leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com. You can find our other work at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk. Thank you for listening. God bless and goodbye for now.